All right, if you have a Bible, you can grab it and make your way to Hebrews chapter 5. Uh, welcome again to this gathering of Providence Baptist Church. So glad to see all of you guys. So glad to have the chairs a little bit closer together. Uh, you may not be, but we are. Glad to have those back. Glad that we started back with Sunday morning Bible study this morning. And we are going to jump right back in uh, with our study through the book of Hebrews. Now, it is no secret if you travel around, like people are hiring, right? Workers are needed. Uh, you see signs at restaurants, you know, be patient with us. We're still trying to hire some more people, that sort of thing. Workers are needed. And if you apply for a job, whether, you know, there or just anywhere, if you've ever interviewed for a job or saw a job, the first thing that you have to, you know, kind of see is they will always give kind of like, hey, here are qualifications for the job, right? And so it'll have like uh, minimum education requirement is this, and minimum experience for this position is this, uh, you know, skills needed will be this, and so it has this list of qualifications. So step one in seeking out a job is like, do I meet the qualifications for this position? Not do I want this position, but do I meet the qualifications, first of all? Like, you got to get that. And then you, you know, maybe you'll be fortunate enough to, you know, be interviewed, and a lot of times when you're, if there's a pool of candidates for a position, it comes down to who does the company think, for whatever reason, and a lot of people have different reasons, but what, whoever, like, who is best qualified? Who's better qualified to have this job? Who is the best qualified person to have this job? And that's kind of who, you know, they decide to hire comes down to that, who they think is better qualified for the job. And this is exactly the author's argument in Hebrews chapter 5 as it relates to Jesus and the high priest. That, that Jesus is the true and better high priest because his qualifications are better. His qualifications are better than, like, they, they blow everyone else's out of the water. And so as we come into Hebrews 5, I mean, it's just continuing the theme that we've seen throughout the whole book that Jesus is better. He's better than anything. Jesus is better than anything you can fill in the blank with. And so for the you know, Israelites to whom this is written, and it's important to remember context, because like what they were facing, the Hebrew Christians in Rome, as they were facing mounting persecution, the letter was written encouraging them, don't turn back, don't shrink back to what you once were involved with Judaism. And so it's like, hey, don't shrink back to worshiping angels because Jesus is better. Don't shrink back to Moses and Joshua and Aaron. No, Jesus is better than them. Well, well, maybe the high priest, I could go back to him. He's a really, really godly dude. And he's saying, no, don't shrink back from following Jesus. Jesus is better. Stay the course. And the argument is the same for us in our day. We could fill in the blank with different things. Maybe it's sexuality. Maybe it's finances. Maybe it's... You know, jobs, maybe it's celebrity, maybe it's politics. No, Jesus is better than those things. Don't shrink back to those things. But here in chapter 5, beyond just saying that Jesus is better than the high priest, he's making a point, a theological point, that Jesus is the true and better high priest. He's the high priest to end all high priests. He's what they were pointing forward to. They were temporary. Jesus is Forever. They were a foreshadow. Jesus is the substance. They were just preparing. Jesus is the real deal. He has come. All that they were signifying comes to fruition in Christ because He's better qualified.
qualified. And so our text, if you look at chapter 5, 1 through 10, it breaks down really easily into two sections. Verses 1 through 4 kind of lays out the qualifications of the high priest. And then verses 5 through 10 really lays out Jesus' superseding better qualifications, why he is more qualified to be the high priest, a forever high priest. And what I want to do this morning is give you, like rather than just kind of go through list one and then list two, I want to try to pull the list side by side and do some comparing and contrasting and give you four reasons that Jesus is the true and better high priest. Four reasons that he's better qualified, all right? And so that's what we're going to do. But somebody says right off the bat, Joe, hold up, high priest, I don't even know what you're talking about. We're going to talk about it a little bit more as we go through, but just crash course, all right? High priest. In ancient Israel, there were three offices that were kind of like the main offices through which God worked in redemptive history. And they are prophets, priests, and kings, okay? Prophets in the Old Testament declared the word of God to the people. That's what they did. Kings represented God to the people from an authority. Priests represented the people to God as the go-between, as the mediator. And so what I want to show you this morning is four reasons Jesus is the true and better go-between, why he's the true and better high priest, all right? So get us started. Let's read God's word together. We're going to actually start where Christy read the end of chapter four and flow into our text, chapter five, verses one through 10, because they go together. They're so closely connected. So would you read with me? Chapter four. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest, like, so you have to call there, hold fast. Hold fast your confession. Draw near. And now we get kind of the reason that we, can, we should hold fast and draw near. Kind of the rationale behind that. Verse 5, chapter 5. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. To offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sin just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself but only when called by God just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest but was appointed by him who said to him, and this is Psalm 2-7, Today you are my son. Or you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, which is Psalm 110, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect... He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order 
of Melchizedek. And so again, you've got these two lists, verses 1 through 4, verses 5 through 10, putting them side by side. The first reason Jesus is the true and better high priest is pretty simple. And it's because, number one, Jesus is a better human. And Jesus is a better human. Again, we're talking about qualifications here. And so one of the obvious qualifications to be a high priest is that you have to be a human. Like if you want to represent people to God, you have to be a person. And so verse 1, for every high priest chosen from among men. And so like that, they, if you're going to represent God, you've got to be a person. It's the same, you've got to be a human. It's the same thing with Jesus. He had to be fully human, just like us. And so verse 7, in the days of his flesh. So Jesus was a man. Okay, he was fully human. Chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. And so he had to be fully human, okay? But here's the deal. He's a better human. Why? Because he never sinned. Like even though he was made in every way just like us, he never sinned. Even though he was tempted in every respect just like us, he never sinned. He's a better high priest because he's a better human. I mean, verse 3, before the high priest could offer gifts and sacrifices for sin on behalf of the people, he had to first offer a sacrifice for his own sin. But not Jesus. Jesus doesn't have to offer a sacrifice for his own sin because he never sinned. And he always submitted to the will of the Father. I mean, even the Garden of Gethsemane that verse 3 or verse 7 is referencing with tears. You know, he's crying and he's praying. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, you know, he prayed, Father, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus is better qualified because, number one, Jesus is a better human. He perfectly obeyed, always. Okay? Sinless. Number two is we pull qualifications side by side. Number two is this. Jesus is a better mediator. Jesus is a better mediator because He actually saves. Like, He actually does it. See, the the high priest, verse 1, again, look at it with me acted on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. And this happened chiefly on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Okay? And so for those of you who have Jewish friends, this was like six weeks ago. September 15th was Yom Kippur this year. October the 4th will be Yom Kippur next year, the Day of Atonement. And what happens on that day What happened on that day, the Day of Atonement, is that the high priest would go into the temple, and this was the one day a year that he could go, not only go into the temple, but he could go into the the back section behind this giant 60-foot high, four-inch thick curtain into an area known as the Holy of Holies. The area that was like, like, that is where God dwelled. One day a year, he could go back there to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people, but first he had to offer sacrifices for himself. 
And so he would start back. They would tie a good. They would tie a rope around him so that if he dropped dead in the presence of God, they could drag him out of there. The holiness of God, sinfulness of man. If he had not atoned for his own sins before he went back there. And what he would do this one time of year, this day of atonement, is he would go back there to burn incense and sprinkle sacrificial and substitutionary animal blood for at least a temporary forgiveness of sins. All right? And again, there's this giant curtain, 60 foot high, four inch thick, and there's only one day a year that the high priest could go back there to mediate between God and the people. But as some of you guys know, what happened to the curtain when Jesus died, like the moment he died on the cross? It was torn in two. And it says from top to bottom. So unlike somebody snipped it at the bottom and got a bunch of people and you know, ran to the sides, from top to bottom, 60 foot high, 4 inch thick, from top to bottom, point being, God was showing that now through Christ, we have access to the Father. We don't need, a, need, we don't need a, a priest anymore. We have a great high priest, Jesus, who has made direct access to the Father. We meet with God in Him. 1 Timothy 2.5 puts it like this. For there is one God and there is one mediator. This is basically the song we sang. The first song basically is just quoting this. There is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. And so Jesus is a better mediator because he gives us direct access, but also because he actually atones for our sin. Like the high priest could just offer these temporary sacrifices of, of bulls and goats, but they could never truly atone for our sins. They could never truly be our substitute. They were pointing forward to the one who would come and atone, the one who would come and be our substitute. And so when Jesus shows up on the scene, he lives a life of perfect sinlessness that we haven't. He dies a death. We are condemned to die. And then he rises again in victory over sin, death, hell, and the grave. And this is why he is, like verse 9, this is why it says he was made perfect. That's what it means. It doesn't mean like he was lacking in perfection. He was not morally perfect previously. This is chapter 2. We talked about it. It uses the same word, made perfect. He has completed the role for which he came to, to, he's done what he came to do. Live, die, resurrect. He's completed it. He's actually carried it out. And so verse 9, continuing on, He has become the source of eternal salvation to all who obey Him. Like He's done it. He's completed it. He is our mediator. He is our atoning sacrifice. He was sinless. He's a spotless lamb. And somebody said, well, it says He saves those who obey Him. We are saved by faith. But over the long haul of a lifetime, that faith will be evidenced by a life of ever-increasing obedience. And so the point here, right? Jesus has accomplished it. Like, it's happened. He's come, He shed His blood for you. For me. And here's what we need to hear. 
not for the mythical you you have in mind that you will be someday when you get your act together. He didn't die for that guy. He died for bumbling, fumbling you. Right now. That's who he died for. That's who his grace and his mercy extends out to. Which means, and I love this quote from the Puritan Thomas Brooks. Everybody gives Puritans a hard time. Read them. Thomas Brooks writes this, Christian, consider that the trials and troubles, I shared this maybe a couple months ago, consider that the trials and troubles, the calamities and miseries, the crosses and losses that you meet with in this world are all the hell you shall ever have. Because Jesus has made atonement. He has made a way. We have access to the Father. He is a better mediator because He mediates and He truly atones. He actually saves. He doesn't just foreshadow. He actually does it. Right? And so number three then, putting qualifications, trying to pull them up side by side, compare and contrast. We see that the high priest had to be appointed to this position. All right? And so number three then, Jesus is better because He has a better appointment. Jesus has a better appointment. Why? Because His is permanent. It's not temporary. Look at verse 1 again. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of man in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Look down at verse 4. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Verse 5 now, looking at Jesus, like the other list of qualifications. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Look at that. You are a priest forever. And so Jesus has a better appointment because God has made him a priest forever. Other priesthoods had a termination date. What was it? When they died. Right? Like they didn't live. They couldn't keep going. They had a termination date because all of them died. Jesus is a priest forever because he's not dead. Like the resurrect, he rose again. Which means now, like as a priest forever, he's interceding for you even now. Like when you do something dumb, when you sin again, I promised God I wasn't going to do it again, but I did it again. You have an advocate with the Father. You have someone interceding for you. And Jesus is in heaven basically, you know, kind of saying this is oversimplification, but yeah, that, Father, that one, I got him. I, I paid for that one. He's, he's ours. He belongs to us. Jesus has a better appointment. It's permanent. Verse 6 again, he says in another place, you are a priest forever. And then we get this, after the order of Melchizedek. And that confuses us. Who the heck is Melchizedek? Uh, we're going to deal more with him when we get to chapter 7 because it's a lot about Melchizedek. But just to give you kind of a little crash course, Melchizedek's mentioned twice in all of the Old Testament. Genesis 14, 
And then this quote here from Psalm 110. That's the only two places he's mentioned. But here's what's unique about Melchizedek. All throughout the Old Testament, you see people who are, who are kings, and you see people who are priests. And they are never the same person. You have kings, and you have priests, and yeah, you have prophets also. But they're never the same person. That's why, like Saul, he gets in big trouble when, as a king, he tries to offer a sacrifice. That's not your role. Stay in your lane, bro, right? He loses the kingdom over it. They are different people always, except for Melchizedek. Melchizedek was the ancient king of Salem at the time of Abraham, which became Jerusalem. He's the king. And says he's the priest of the Most High God. So Melchizedek was both of these roles. And so when Jesus is described as being a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, that's what it's talking about. His appointment is better because he's not just priest representing the people to God. He's also king representing God to the people. And then as we've seen elsewhere in our study previously, he's also prophet. He speaks the word of God as he is the incarnate word of God. And so Jesus' appointment is better because it's an appointment to forever be the true and better prophet, the true and better priest, the true and better king. All of these roles in the Old Testament find their culmination, they pointed to, and they find their culmination, their fulfillment in Christ. And so kind of just pulling back up then for a minute, <clears throat> comparing these qualifications, we see that Jesus is a better high priest because he is better qualified. He's a, better, he's a better human. He's a better mediator. He has a better appointment. And all three of these things are kind of like the nouns of Jesus' role of high priest. Like th this is, it's like the facts. Here's, here's who he is. But then number four is like the adjective. Number four is the describer. And what is the describer that leaps most off the pages in this section? It's verse 2. Gentle. And so number four in your notes, Jesus is a better high priest because Jesus is perfectly gentle. He's perfectly gentle. Look at verse two. He can deal gently with the ignorant, this being the, the high priest. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. And so the point here is that the high priest, because he's human, because he's beset with weakness, okay, a sinful weakness, because he's beset with sin, that's why he has to offer sacrifices for himself first, like because of that, he should be gentle with fellow sinners. But as we look at the Bible, a lot of times the high priest is not at all gentle. And as we look at ourselves, a lot of times we are not at all gentle. But if we, I mean, if we would recognize, the high priest was supposed to do this, but he often didn't do this, if we would recognize our own sinfulness, perhaps we would not be so fast to judge other sinners. See, the reality is that we are all sinners. We just sin in different ways. But then what we wind up doing is spending a lot of time trying to convince ourselves that our sin is not as bad as that person's sin. John and I were talking about this this 
week, we're just, you know, on a theological exploration. We started talking about different things, and we wound up talking about the fact that, like, when you, when you scale, when you recognize how far you are from God, and we are, like, infinitely separated from God, He is so holy, and we are so sinful, when you scale that, that great chasm, and then you come down to sinners, and you look at the difference in my sin, and this person's sin, and this person's sin, and people be like, oh, big, dirty sinner. Like, we're infinite. Any, I know math. In, any, well, some. Anything <laughs> multiplied by infinities, infinity. Right? So the, the difference of us, little, this is minuscule. We're virtually all the same, yet we sit here trying to judge, pit one sin against the other. I'm better than you because I don't do this. Or, right? Or judging other people, condemning other people. And so we need to stop ganging up on people who sin, but just do it different than you do. Because you sin too. I sin too. It doesn't excuse any sin. Do not hear me saying, just forget it. No, no, no. Not excuse. I'm just saying, neither is yours, except through Christ, just as theirs can be. Now, what we try to do is we, we, we set up in our minds certain sins are okay. Overworking, being a workaholic, because we're good Americans. That's a good sin. N- no, it's sin, right? Or owning somebody. I owned them on social media. That, that, that's a sin. It's not a good thing. And we would never admit it, but many of us live with these super self-righteous attitudes towards other sinners and sufferers. I thank you, God, that I'm not like this person. Right? Pharisee. And so we pretend that these things are okay. It's all right. But then these other things are not okay. But friend, God's grace and mercy is just as applicable to those people as it is to you. But they're they're not a believer. Then we say with Jesus, Lord, forgive them for they know not what they do. I mean, I'm I'm ranting, but I, I got a microphone, so I can't. How much would just how much would your life, your family, uh, the church overall, our country change if we did two kindergarten level? We're teaching you basics. Put it on a flannel graph. Put some construction paper and take it home. Things. One, the golden rule. Treat others the way you want to be treated. And note that stated positively. It's not negatively. It's not don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. It's stated positively. Do to others what you would have them, how you would have them treat you. How much would life change if we did that? That's one. And then two, the great commandment. Love God more than anything else and love your neighbor as yourself. How much would that radically, radically change our world in a day where everything is built off of outrage. I was watching uh, Matt Chandler 
there's a little meme or a little clip that I saw a couple weeks ago. I showed it to our staff. And he's basically making the point that like in today's world of outrage, the bar for apologetics is really, really low. Right? Used to, you had to be able to explain and give these great defenses. Apologetics just means defense of. These great defenses of like the Christian faith. Now, all you have to do is, the bar so low, you just step over by not being a jerk. Hey, that person's different. Golden rule. Great commandment. And we have to sit there and say, let that start with me. Regardless of how other people respond to it, we don't live these ways for, like, to get... You know, reciprocation. We live these ways because Jesus lived these ways, because Jesus calls us to live these ways. Rant complete. Back to the point. The high priest should have been gentle. That's what he should have done. But so often he wasn't. But he should have been. He should have been because he should have like gotten it because he's a sinful human. He's supposed to get it. But he didn't. But Jesus always is gentle and always gets it. Because he too was a human. Right? He's not a sinner. He doesn't have a sin full weakness he has a sinless weakness as john talked about last week he faces sinfulness and temptation in full because like the guy walking against the wind eventually he will fall down and the wind will pass over him but jesus kept like he has the guy who falls down has no idea how strong the wind would have kept up if he had just kept going but jesus keeps going he never falls so he knows sin he's faced sin far more than we ever will he is beset with weakness because he's a human, because he's faced it. Not because he sinned, but because he's faced everything. That's why chapter 4, verse 15 says this. For we do not, look at your Bibles because I'm going to ask you a question. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our, give me that word, weaknesses. But one in, who, in, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without Sin. And so Jesus had zero sin, but he did experience everything else that it means to live as a human in a fallen world. The weakness of suffering. You see that in verse 8. The weakness of aging. The weak, I know he's only 33. His body failing him. The weakness of temptation. Now, every human weakness. And he never sinned. And therefore, he sympathizes with us. He gets it. He's faced it, yet without sin. And so as a human who has faced the same stuff we does, we, we have, he sympathizes with us. He deals gently with us. Because he too is human. But Jesus' humanity is not the only reason he's gentle with us. He's also gentle with us because that's who he is, like by nature. 
Look at Matthew chapter 11 that we read earlier today. We read it all together. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. That's who he is. Isaiah chapter 55, uh, verses 8 and 9 are verses that we often use to explain God's like mysterious providential working. And, and rightly so. Right? So if we don't fully understand something, we'll rattle off, you know, his ways are not our ways, his thoughts are not our thoughts. And, and that's true. But contextually, have you ever looked closely at what it is that God is describing there? Like his thoughts not being our thoughts? His ways not being our ways? If you have a Bible, turn to Isaiah chapter 55 and the black hardback ones around you. It's on page 615, I think. In some of them, in some of the black hardback Bibles it is. Isaiah 55 is pretty much smack dab in the middle of your Bible, maybe a little bit to the left. You can cheat and use the table of contents. That's okay. But Isaiah chapter 55 starts this way in verse 1, and then we'll skip down to verse 6. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Like it's free. Skip down to verse 6. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man His thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that He may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon for my thoughts are not your thoughts neither are your ways my ways declares the Lord for as the heavens are higher than the earth so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts in other words come to me because I'm not like you I'm not harsh I'm not vindictive I'm not like you. I'm higher. My thoughts are different. My ways are different. My heart is filled with, verse 7, compassion. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon him. Like this is what the Bible shows us about our God from cover to cover. Just from cover to cover. From page to page to page. I mean, the most repeated verse in all of the Bible, the verse that, fin, that, that, that serves as kind of like God's pinned tweet over the whole Bible, the one He keeps at the top, is Exodus 34, 6. And here's what it says. It 
The Lord, the Lord. This is God describing, he's, he, he's introducing himself to Moses. And he's telling him, here's what I'm like. And so he says, then, verse 5, Then the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed in the name of the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty. I want you to notice as Psalm, Sam Alberry pointed out, the asymmetry of this verse. I mean, there's no denial here that, Jesus, that, 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 that God has wrath against sin. There's no denial in that. But that is not what dominates this verse. It's like a tack on at the end. See, sometimes I think we live, I've lived this way. So I guess you have too. That sometimes we picture God as like a balance. And on one side is his wrath, and on one side of his lo- is his love, and they're basically the same. Jesus helps tip it to love, right? Maybe that's how we picture God sometimes. That's not what this verse or the Bible tells us. Look at the asymmetry of this. What what dominates this pinned tweet over the entire Bible, most repeated verse in all the Bible? What gets the most amount of ink from God in describing Himself is mercy and grace. The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And then we get, but who will by no means clear the guilty? This is who God is at His heart. This is who Jesus is. And who does it say in in verse 2 of our text that God deals gently with? Does it say those who are, you know, reasonable and just moderately sinful? Nope. It says ignorant and wayward. Meaning everybody. Those who sin accidentally because they're ignorant of the truth and those who sin deliberately. They're wayward. Those who sin unintentionally, they're ignorant. And those who sin on purpose. Like, yes, Jesus, I declare you are better, but right now I want this more. I've been pumping Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly, for months. We've got 200 copies for everybody who wants one. There's still a box out there. Grab them. They're free. One of the best books that I've read in the last 20 years. Period. Get it. And he, in chapter 5, writes this. Sums up this section, verse 2 in particular, like this. When Hebrews 5.2 says that Jesus can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward, the point is that Jesus deals gently and only gently 
with all sinners who come to him, irrespective of their particular offense and just how heinous it is. What elicits tenderness from Jesus is not the severity of the sin, but whether the sinner comes to him. Whatever offense, he deals gently with us. If we never come to him, we will experience a judgment so fierce it will be like a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth at us. If we do come to him, as fierce as his lion-like judgment would have been against us, so deep will be his lamb-like tenderness for us. We will be enveloped in one or the other. To no one will Jesus be neutral. And so consider what all this means. When we sin, we are encouraged to bring our mess to Jesus. Let us approach the throne of grace. Because He will know how to receive us. And He doesn't handle us roughly. He doesn't scowl and scold. He doesn't lash out the way I sometimes lash out at my kids. And all of his restraint is not because he like looks past sin. He knows it far better than we do. His restraint just flows out of his tender heart for his people. And so Hebrews isn't just telling us, hey, instead of scolding, Jesus loves us. It's telling us how he loves us. He doesn't just throw out and dispense grace from our own high, but he's gentle with us. He comes down where we're at with us, in the boat, in the water, in the mess, puts his arms around us, and is gentle. This is why he's a better high priest. He's perfectly gentle. And that's the adjective. That's the describer of this whole section. And so fitting with the theme of the book, friend, don't give up. Don't quit. Whatever it is that you are going through, whatever it is you are facing, whatever sin you're battling, don't quit. Don't give up. Don't give in. Don't turn back to other ways. Don't look to something else. Jesus is better. Stay the course. Keep going. Repent again and again and again and come to Jesus. Like when you've blown it for the thousandth time, don't throw in the towel. Keep going. Keep pressing on. Hold fast to your confession. Because Jesus is the high priest to end all high priests. And He's gentle. And He loves you. And He forgives you. And He perseveres alongside of you. And He doesn't quit. So don't you quit. Look to Him. Ortland, once again... As long as you fix your attention on your sin, you will fail to see how you can be safe. But as long as you look to this high priest, you'll fail to see that you could be in any danger because he's taken it. Looking inside ourselves, we can anticipate only harshness from heaven. Looking out to Christ, we can anticipate only gentleness. And this is why we hold fast to our confession. This is why we can approach with confidence. 
God's throne of grace and find mercy and grace to help in time of need. Because he is a better high priest. Let's pray. Lord, sometimes it's hard to just even get words to describe our gratefulness to you. As we recognize our sinfulness and your graciousness and your mercy, as we look to the cross and the sacrifice that you made for us, Jesus, It's just so humbling, it's hard to describe because we don't deserve. But praise, praise you. Praise you. It's not about what we deserve. I mean, that's the whole point of the Bible. You love being merciful to people who don't deserve mercy. You love giving grace to people who don't deserve grace. And so, Father, I pray for those in here right now, Lord, who are in a place where they've been beating themselves up. Yes, they sinned. But they are yours. They have trusted in you. And yes, there should be conviction over sin. Yes, from the Holy Spirit, Lord, but so often it's hard to tell the difference between what begins as conviction proper from the Holy Spirit and then what becomes the words of the accuser holding our head underwater, trying to drown us with guilt and shame. And so I pray for those in this room who are in that place again. That you indeed, as your word says, would be the lifter of their head. That they would look to you. They would know That you welcome back all who will come to you. And you do so willingly, happily, joyfully, fattened calf, throw a party. Father, I pray for those in this room who recognize perhaps today that they are the self righteous, looking down their nose holding themselves up as better than others because they sin in a different way. Would you comfort them as well that that grace too, that that sin, that that sin too is covered by grace and when they get up and go and sin no more. And Father, I pray for those in here today who have never received the free gift of salvation that Jesus offers. The free gift of, of grace and mercy. They are right now still at enmity with you. But you have flung open the doors. Come in. Ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Father, would you draw them today?
and save them. By your grace, for your glory and their good. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.